Isaiah chapter 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoiced before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase in his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Ooh, I can say no. Um, give up an opportunity to pray? What the heck? Uh, <laughs> Father God, bless the people here and those that couldn't be here um, in this time of Advent when you came to us on earth. We ask that you salve our wounds and help us understand who you are. We ask that you guide us. We ask that you lead us. We ask during this season, this crazy season that is full of both joy and grief, that you take us and lead us in your way. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Linda. So if you want, the roadmap for where we're going this morning. Uh, Advent, Isaiah, Jesus, and you. The next four weeks, we are going to be focusing on the incarnation. Uh, and so today, birth, next week, the life of Jesus. Mike has quite uh, the material to work with there. Anthony's going to look at the death of Jesus, and then on uh, Christmas Eve, the resurrection. And here's the aim every year in these four Sundays leading up to Christmas. Uh, my heart and hope is to provide some help in the hustle uh, and some hope in the midst of the hurt. If we Americans know anything about this season, it is that uh, it is very fast and it is very difficult. And I don't know that it has to be that way. I think the gospel brings good news for us all. And so how are you doing? Like, let's just do a second and take a big breath. <sighs> like, where are you at? How are you doing? And what are you asking Jesus to do in you and through you in this season? As we look at Jesus, as we look at this story, the prophecy of his arrival, we get both of those things. We get help in the hustle and we get hope in 
the hurt. And we need these because we live in a day and an age where uh, we are affected culturally and given a liturgy that is less than helpful. I don't know if you feel this, but like, I can understand some resistance against the church calendar, Advent, Lent, all of that. If, if that's you, I totally respect that and, and understand. However, at the same time, we have to realize we are living within cultural liturgies all the time. We don't necessarily call them Advent uh, and Christmas and Epiphany and all of those things, but we call it Halloween, and then we call it Get Ready for Thanksgiving, and then we call it Black Friday, and then we call it Cyber Monday, and then we call it Giving Tuesday, and I'm proposing today a new holiday, turn off the electricity Wednesday, after all of that. Leave me alone for a day. Nothing's open, we aren't buying anything, we aren't emailing, nothing. The lights are off for one day, and then that Thursday, run, run, run until Christmas, especially in this town. Lighting parade, Christmas parade, courthouse lighting, Acker night, and again, these things are all good. I'm showing that I'm a recovering Grinch. I'm in process of all of that. But it's just to say this, that we are a people that are liturgied. We have parties, engagements, full calendars, and tons of festivities. And Advent offers a better way in the midst of all of that. The word Adventus is Latin. It means arrival or coming. And these four weeks within the church calendar are offering a better alternative. It's often treated, at least in my head, as like kind of just a speed bump on Sundays. We're like full pedal to the metal going to Christmas and then Sundays like, Ugh. oh yeah, Jesus. Ugh. Oh yeah, the Lord. Ugh. Oh yeah, I need to have peace and joy and all of that. When, that's not what it's supposed to be, Advent is meant to be a different route. It's taking Highway 89A through Sedona up into Flagstaff. It's the slower better, more peaceful route. And so that's my hope, is that we learn increasingly to exit and go by the scenic byway as we choose to embrace the way of Jesus each year. Tish Harrison Warren says this, in general, the whole liturgical calendar is set up so that you never have celebration without preparation. Advent is focused more on preparation. Advent is designed to call us into rest, into reflection, and into hope. For what's next. That's what Christians are focusing on when they celebrate Advent. And so this season welcomes the tension that we feel. There's the celebration and hallelujah of the first arrival of Jesus in Bethlehem all those years ago. But it gives this longing for the second coming of Christ. Advent embraces the tension of living between the first arrival of Jesus and longing for, expecting, hoping for the second coming of Christ. It allows us to feel every feeling and emotion that this season brings. It gives perspective and help here and now. Fleming Rutledge says, The entire thrust of this season is designed to bring us face to face with reality. Reality about sin and death, reality about the human race, reality about God. Something ultimate has entered our world, something or someone that calls us to attention, calls us out of our daily preoccupations and our routine points of view. That is what this season with its special biblical readings is designed to reveal. And so, as I said, for this season, for Union, we're looking at the incarnation, on the incarnation of Christ, that 
phrase was coined by Athanasius in 318-ish A.D., an early church father. And, and the word incarnation is this beautiful mystery that God becomes a man. It's math that our minds don't fully compute. 100% God, 100% man. I was at a memorial service, and there was a five-year-old yesterday trying to convince me. He said he was a math whiz. He was trying to convince me that zero plus zero equals one. And I was trying to be nice, but I told him he was very wrong. <laughs> Can't be having that business. But God takes on flesh, and it's fully God, fully man, 100% Jesus. So I don't know if that's just one times one equals one. It, it doesn't fully, we can't wrap our heads around it, but it is completely beautiful and reasonable. Martin Luther says this, it is because of his humanity and his incarnation that Christ becomes sweet to us, and through him God becomes sweet to us. Let us therefore begin to ascend step by step from Christ's crying in his swaddling clothes up to his passion. Then we shall easily know God. I am saying this so you do not begin to contemplate God from the top, but start with the weak elements. This should best ourselves completely with treating, knowing, and considering this man. Then you will know he is the way, the truth, and the life. And so... I'm going heavy on quotes today. Sorry, not sorry. I love this Anglican prayer from the Book of Common Prayer. So may the Lord make you glad during the remembrance of his birth, of only his son, Jesus Christ, of his only son, Jesus Christ, that you may joyfully receive him for your redeemer. You may with sure confidence behold him when he shall come to be our judge. That's the season we are now in. And our text today is a well-known one from Isaiah, especially the latter half of it. For unto us a son is born, a child is given. But the backdrop of Isaiah 9 is very, very dark and bloody. The backdrop of Advent is, is bloody. King Uzziah, one of the better kings in the history of Judah, we see is dead in chapter 6 of Isaiah. And things are bleak for Israel as a whole, Judah in particular. The king on the throne is Ahaz, and if you want to look at the history, uh, you can boil it down into this, not a good king. Judgment from Assyria is about to arrive, and this is what is facing God's people. So here's some of the history behind this. Between 734 and 732 B.C., Tiglath-Pileser II... It's a fun name. It's a good name. Tiglath-Pileser. Again, if you're looking, uh, anyways. He goes west and he clashes with King Rezin of Damascus and King Pekah of Israel. And those two kings in the ancient east become vassals. They are uh, pawns in the chessboard of Assyria that are basically heavily taxed in doing his bidding. You can see this in 2 Kings 16. And these two look to loop in Ahaz and go, hey, uh, this isn't going to go well for you, so just kind of uh, join the party and become a vassal, become a servant, and, and just, you know, that's better than getting destroyed. Ahaz refuses. And so those Damascus and Israel, northern Israel, they attack Judah and defeat most of them. You can look in Second Chronicles 28. It is a 
dark and sad chapter of the Bible. You see 120,000 soldiers fall in a day, and Ahaz inevitably becomes a vassal and is heavily taxed. He's beat to shreds. And part of the decay that came with that was the decay of the moral and religious life. You see Ahaz then beginning to build altars all around to make sacrifices to Assyrian gods. It was not as it was meant to be. You see the worship of Baal increasing. There's pagan altars. There's sacrifice to these foreign idols and gods. There's golden bronze that is taken from the temple and given to old Tiggy, uh, Tiglath. And, and Ahaz is in the midst of leading people, you can see in Isaiah 8, to, to mediums and necromancers, that is like trying to communicate with the dead instead of God's law. All while the power and authority of Assyria is growing and threatening the nation and God's people. Hopefully you get a little bit of a glimpse of how hard that must have been for the people of Judah at the time. Uh, Jewish scholar Abraham Heschel, he says this, Assyria's masters are planning to conquer the whole earth. Isaiah 5, 25 through 29. Her greed is reckless her weapons devastating, her armies formidable, crushing all resistance, sweeping to victories. No one seems to question her invincibility except Isaiah, who foresees the doom of the oppressor, the collapse of the monster. How so? This is where we come to Isaiah chapter 9. A royal announcement shows up. And from this backdrop of darkness and death, an impending doom, there's a light that is promised to come. Verse 2 through 5 address life as it actually was for them. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them his, a light has shone. This promise, you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy, they rejoice before you as, as the joy of the harvest. They are glad when they divide the spoil. But in reality, the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken, is on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment roiled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Two through five address life as it actually is, but then gives this promise that a light is coming and that is meant to change everything. And Frank says, look how a single candle can both defy and define the darkness. See, it's helpful to know this history lest we sentimentalize the coming of Christ. It's a tendency all of us have to just simply make Jesus' arrival a little manger scene, Thomas Kincaid. But the way the story goes is not a Hallmark card. The words of Isaiah are not that of, you know, a greeting card writer. Glad tidings, good things, sugar cookies. But the way in which God accomplishes his promises is, is mind-boggling. That he makes this promise and is wrapped up in human form. From the line of David, one will come. He speaks of how he will be born, the type of government he will bring about. 
the names he will be called, this reign of peace, that he will rule on the throne, that God is going to get this done. What was this prophecy meant to do for these people? Again, not to make them just feel some warm fuzzies, hallmark-type emotions, but it was to stir up something deep within them. Gary Smith, in his commentary, says, This good news offers another opportunity for rebellious people to turn from trusting in political alliances, mediums, and the spirits of the dead, because God is their only true source of hope. Neither Ahaz nor any modern political figure can ever hope to bring about an era of perfect peace and justice. Only God's wonderful plans will bring about these ideals, not the plans of Ahaz or any other fast-talking politician. God's promises will only be accomplished through his chosen messianic ruler, so placing trust in any other solution is folly. The prophecy of Isaiah is meant to stir God's people yet again to these core foundations of the faith. There is no other hope except in God. There is no other peace except in God. There is no other good king except the one that God appoints. It's meant to stir up God's people, to lift their eyes from the darkness, to see the light and the promises of God, which then reorients their reality of where they're at. To no longer turn towards foreign kings, foreign gods, foreign idols, but in Yahweh alone. And this timeline that then unfolds is about as surprising as the prophecy itself. It takes 700 years for this to unfold. Assyria rises and falls, but the promise God makes is the promise that is kept. If you fast forward all the way, to Matthew chapter 1, verse 9, you see this. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Fast forward to verse 21, where Jesus enters into the picture. They're speaking about him. She, Mary, will bear a son from this lineage. You shall call his name Jesus for he will save people from their sins. This took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. You fast forward to chapter 2, verse 5. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah from for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Promises made are promises kept. But still, I look at it and I go, a baby? Of, of all the ways in which God could bring about redemption, salvation, and deliverance for his people, he begins with a baby. And I don't know that if we really think about that, that the, the beautiful complexity and simplicity of that will ever, like, there's not enough time to fully grasp the beauty of that. That God does not accomplish his plan through the, the power of the world. He begins 
with vulnerability. He begins with a child. God's plan of redemption and his rule of peace begins with a baby. And I realize most, not all, babies are cute and wonderful. Two out of three of mine were real cute. (laughs) First one looked like an old man, and I love him, and I told him that. But a baby. We can learn so much from this reality, and it's still calling out today that God makes a promise, he keeps his promise, and his plan and his unfolding throughout time and history is not anything we could ever dream up ourselves. And so recalling that story, seeing this promise does something within us. Advent helps because first we see that it meets us where we are and as we are. Real people in the nooks and crannies of our real lives in the midst of both the chaos and the calm of our world, our family, our vocation, Jesus stoops to us there. Where your real pain is, Jesus is there. Where your real joy and celebration and hope is, Jesus is there. Jesus meets us where we are, as we are. He doesn't ask us first to clean up our act, to get it all together. He just simply asks us to invite him in where we are, as we are, with honesty. Instead we go, Jesus... I'll get to you when I get a few things sorted out. When I get my mascara on and get the blush lined up and whatever other makeup things are, then, Jesus. No, he meets us where we are, as we are. Jesus is the God who stoops to our level in love. The second thing Advent does is it orients us towards the promise fulfilled in the promise that is yet to come. This is perpetually needed and part of our daily discipleship that we need perspective on where we are, where we've been, and what is yet to come. All of us are amnesiacs. All of us are forgetful. But when we recall This entire story, God has made promises, God has kept his promises, and there are promises yet to be fulfilled. We go, oh yeah, the world is still broken, and God is bringing about beauty. I'm not where I want to be, but I'm also not where I once was. We need to be oriented towards the faithfulness of God in the past, the presence of God right now, and the promises of God in the future. And finally, Advent reminds us of who God is and what he's really like. That he is a promiser and a bringer of peace. That he will reign and bring about his justice. His righteousness will reign forever. And I love this at the end of Isaiah, verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That he is relentless. In the words of one of my favorite comedians, he ain't never going to stop. <laughs> He's after his people in love. It brings to mind a famous poem by Francis Thompson called The Hound of Heaven. This is how it opens. I fled him. This is Israel. This is us. 
I fled him down nights and down days. I fled him down the arches of years. I fled him down labyrinth and... Beth, how do you say that word? (laughs) That mazy type ways of my own mind and in the midst of tears, I hid from him. And under running laughter, up to Vista's hope, I sped and shot precipitated. Adown titanic glooms of chasm fears from those strong feet that followed, followed after. But with unhurrying chase, an unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat. And a voice beat, more instant than the feet, all things betray thee. Who betrayest me? And the poem goes on for a long, long time about God's pursuit and love for his people. It's so beautiful and terrifying, the relentless love of God. The unending, never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love of God. He is after his people. He's after your heart. He's after your affection. He's after your worship. And in love, he is pursuing his people. And this helps us because we can apply that to the longing and darkness within us. If the government is on his shoulders, it means he has it all under control. If he is the wonderful counselor, then it means he, is no, he, he knows he is near and he is the one who is listening and speaking. If he is a mighty God, it means he is strong and able. I love the pairing of those two, wonderful counselor and mighty God. Wonderful counselor is so comforting. If you've ever had a good counselor, a good counselor is one who mostly listens, asks really good questions, and then gives little bits and pieces of advice that sends you on such a different trajectory. That's what a good counselor does. And you go, oh, thank God, I'm heard, I'm understood. And they're leading towards life. But the problem with counselors is they can't change you. (laughs) They don't have the ability, they don't have the strength, But God is not only just a counselor who listens, who knows is near, but he's the one who is able to empower you for that journey, to accomplish it. You go, oh, sweet. Both are fully available. You don't want a mighty God who is not a wonderful counselor. You don't want a wonderful counselor who isn't a mighty God, but he is both together. And if he's the everlasting father, it means he's faithful and he is for his children. If he's the prince of peace, it means through his rule and reign, he will bring and sustain shalom for you, for his people, for the world. And if all of that is true in Jesus, it means we have what we need where we are. The darkness we experience today is illuminated by his love. That is the tension of Advent. Again, Fleming Rutledge says in the church, this is the season of Advent. It's superficially understood as a time to get ready for Christmas, but in truth, it's a season for contemplating the judgment of God. Advent is the season that when properly understood does not flinch from the darkness that stalks us all in this world, Advent begins in the dark and moves towards the light. But the season should not move too quickly or too glibly, 
lest we fail to acknowledge the depth of the darkness. Advent bids us to take fearless inventory of the darkness, the darkness without and the darkness within. And so we find ourselves in another season. How will we be shaped? How will we live in this tension? Jesus is patient and good and kind and loving and exceedingly more beautiful than we could ever imagine, but his plan is rarely how we would anticipate it or expect it to unfold. And so let's look to him, pursue him, and rest in him today. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you deal with reality. That this story isn't simply a fairy tale, but it comes to real people in their real lives. And God, you, you meet us with love, with understanding. And we invite your rule and reign into our lives and into this world. And so God, we thank you for the joy and celebration that is among us. God, we pray for your peace and your grace where there's pain and there's struggle.